So if you're new here, I'm also pretty new. This is my third Sunday here as part of Restored Uptown. So thanks for a little over there. Um, my wife, daughter, and I have just moved from Durban on the east coast of South Africa here to San Diego to be part of the leadership team of this church and yeah, to be part of this community. So we are getting used to all of this, but I just want to say thank you to everyone here for just your warmth and kindness um, just being so thoughtful, Jeremy this morning introduced himself to me, and I just thought how kind that is when people say, we don't expect you to know who we are, but it's great to have you here. So thank you. I don't know why everyone sits on this side instead of this side, but um, it's great to have everyone here. If you are new, welcome. If you do want to chat afterwards, we can chat afterwards. But um, I thought I'd just get into this message, and um, I was going to introduce my mother-in-law who is visiting us here from South Africa right now, which is really, really special. We've just arrived uh, just over a month ago, and she's already out coming to meet us and get to know the area and get to know you guys, which is really great. And sadly, my daughter lost her blanket this morning. So we've got a real situation on our hands after gathering, guys, so you can pray for us. But I thought I'd start with this quote. Um, I'm sure some of you have read C.S. Lewis before or know who he is. I'm sure some of you have read some of those really powerful, punchy quotes of his. This is one of my favorites. I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. Isn't that good? Any tea fans here? We've got like six in the room. Maybe if it was a coffee quote, it would go down better. But any reading fans, book fans in the room today, that's a little bit better. Okay, now we're doing all right. I think if you don't like touch base with either of those, maybe you can think, what is my long book? What is my big cup of tea? What is it that I love that just satisfies me? So I think what C.S. Lewis is trying to say here is that there are so many things that we enjoy and love and which satisfy us. And then there's all these things that we spend our free time on, spend our money and our energy on, and all of these things that we, I guess, we think give our lives meaning and joy but none of them are ever quite enough to satisfy us completely. They satisfy us. They're great. We love them, but that satisfaction is short-lived or incomplete. They can't satisfy us completely. So we always need more, but even, that, even more of those things that we love, a good book, a good cup of tea, a good cup of coffee, just won't do it. This is another quote that's quite similar by an Indian pastor named Sadhu Sandar Singh, and I think this is just so profound. He says, just as thirst implies water, and water is intended to remove thirst, so the existence of desire in the soul implies the existence of true happiness and peace. When the soul finds him who planted within it that desire, it receives far greater satisfaction than the thirsty man does from water. What I love about that is I think what Singh is saying is that satisfaction isn't a good thing or a bad thing. You know, desire is not a good thing or a bad thing. They're neutral. They're just signposts. They're pointing us in a direction to something that exists and that is out there. But until we find that thing, the thing that we were made to find, the thing that brings us satisfaction, we will always be longing for more. We'll be always looking for that thing. So I guess the question I want to start with today is what do our souls long for and how do we get it? So if you do have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 6 with me. Otherwise, the scriptures will all come up on this neat TV. But today we're starting a new preaching series called Dissatisfied. And the subtitle is Practices for Pursuing Satisfaction in Jesus. And really, the, this series comes from the reality of what we faced over the last few years. I think all of us, 
our lives have changed. The, the world has changed. In this country, in our home country, South Africa, all over the world, there have been wild, wild things going on and a lot for us to process and deal with and try and come to grips with and just to get through. And I think for all of us, with these new anxieties and stresses and everything, there's been a lot that we've had to cope with and to try and cope with and to manage and to work out how to get through. And I think for many of us, just the things that we faced and have gone through have changed us. We've been changed and impacted by them. But more than just that, they've changed our priorities, they've changed our schedules, they've changed our focus, they've changed maybe how we're doing, how we would say we're doing. They've changed us. And for a lot of us, this disorientation over the last few years has led to some really bad or unhealthy habits that we've just put in place in our lives or allowed to form in our lives to just try and get through. So what we want to do in this series over four weeks, it's a short series, is to look at some good spiritual habits for us individually and for us together as a church that we can either kind of be reminded of or like learn about for the first time, establish in our lives or reestablish in our lives if we've lost them, but really just these practices which will help us to be healthy and mature and satisfied in Jesus. So I'm just gonna give you today's message in a nutshell up front before we get into John 6. I would love you to leave here today believing this truth, and that is that Jesus is enough and that Jesus satisfies. Jesus is enough and that Jesus satisfies. I think probably if you've been in church for a long time, you would say in your head that you know that or you believe that. But I'm sure many of us over the years have doubted that or things have come up that have caused us to doubt or to question. And I'm sure for a lot of us in the last two years, that's true too. We've doubted that Jesus is enough. We've doubted that he can satisfy. And maybe we've looked to other things to try and find what before we'd found in him. So that's the first truth I'd love you to leave here believing. The second thing is a practice I'd love us to put in place in our lives. Very simply, this is a foundation for the series as we start out week one, that we would turn our eyes on Jesus. Now, I've been in church since I was 12, so I sung that hymn growing up that some of you might know, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I'm not going to sing it. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory or mercy and grace. And I love that. I think that's true. For me, when I get swept up in stuff and anxious and stressed, often it's because my eyes have gone off of him and onto other things. So I would love it this morning if we intentionally turned our eyes onto Jesus again and that throughout this week and this month, we kept catching ourselves and turning our eyes back onto him and focusing on him. But back to John 6. This passage that we're in today is a long one. It's 71 verses. So we're not going to read the whole thing up front. It's quite a long chunk. There's also a lot that's going on in John chapter 6. So we can't cover all the ground today. So I'd encourage you to read through John 6 this afternoon. Maybe go through it a couple of times this week and ask the Spirit just to speak to you and to highlight things from you. But we're going to start in the action in verse 24 today and see what's going on in this passage. John 6, 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. This is a really large crowd of people. We'll talk numbers in just a few minutes. But this large crowd of people can't find Jesus, so they hire boats. They do whatever they can to go and find him. They are seeking him out. And I realize some of you this morning are maybe here because you are seeking out Jesus. 
Or maybe you've been walking with him for a while, but you're still seeking him more. You're pursuing him more. You want more of him. Verse 25, when they found him, this large crowd of people, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I just want to like, just touch on that again. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, wonders, miracles, these supernatural works of God, but because you ate your full of lunch. You had some great sandwiches and you're here for more. So let's explain that a little bit more. This, this chapter is a gluten and carb heavy chapter of the Bible. So I hope you're okay with that. Verse 1 to 15, Jesus miraculously multiplies five loaves of bread and two fish to feed this huge crowd of people. Now, if we had that today, it would be hard to feed you guys and leave you full. Jesus had 5,000 men plus women and kids. So let's just say 10,000 men and women, 3,000 kids, 13,000 people, and he's got five loaves of bread and two fish, and he's got to fill everyone up. And he does it. Miraculously, 12 baskets of food left afterwards. I would love to have watched how that happened. Like, there's no sleight of hand going on there. This is a miracle of God. Everyone eats and is full, and they're amazed. They've seen it. They've experienced it. They've eaten it. They were part of this miracle. But more than just the miracle, this was a real-life lesson or experience of people choosing what is temporary over what is eternal, choosing what is now over what is going to last forever. And I think what happens here is these people who have traveled from far away, obviously they're interested in Jesus. They want to know more. They want to see him. They want to hear from him. They want something from him. So they sacrifice their time. I don't know how much it costs to hire those boats and get across the sea and what they had to cancel and give up, but they gave up those things to get across to see Jesus. And they get there and they're part of this amazing thing. But what we see by the end of the chapter is these people who have given, so given up so much for Jesus have given up on him already and gone on to other things. They've gotten offended with Jesus and chosen something else instead. They realized Jesus wasn't who they thought he was and that he wasn't going to give them what they wanted from him. So they move on. And now Jesus says to them in verse 26, and this is my paraphrase of what I just read to you. He says, you're not seeking me because you saw the miracles or because you heard my teaching or because you've been cut to the heart by this beautiful message of God's grace. You're not seeking me because you've had this revelation of how much God loves you and is committed to you no matter what. You're not seeking me out because you know who I am, that I'm the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the long prophesied about and promised one. You're not seeking me out for any of those reasons because of who I am or because you want me. You're coming to me because of what I can give you. You're coming as a consumer, not as a disciple. You want more food. You want more stuff. You don't want salvation. You want sandwiches. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 26. One commentator writing in a book about this says, they were moved by their full tummies, not their full hearts. Which makes sense. I can be like that sometimes. I'm moved to have a nap because of my full tummy, not because of a full heart that's passionate about life. I think this Jesus guy's great. He just gave us a, a great lunch. It's amazing. It was delicious. We love him. Another commentary speaking about this says, in John 6, we see the people come to Jesus for three things. In verse 2, they come to him for the miracles. They want God to give them what they need. They want answered prayer. 
They want to see God do something amazing. In verse 13 and 14, they come to Jesus for satisfaction. They're hungry, and he provides the sandwiches. They're hungry, and he fills their stomachs. And then in verse 15, they try to take him and make him king. They want freedom. They, they want to be set free from the Roman oppression they've been living under. So they try and take Jesus and make him king so that they can get what they want politically. They weren't just coming to Jesus for him. They wanted things. They were using Jesus to get what they wanted. They thought Jesus was their way to the things that they thought could satisfy them the most. He was just the means to the end. And I want to ask you guys today, like, just to think about this for a second. Are you coming to Jesus for him or are you coming to Jesus for stuff? Are you coming to him or are you coming because of what you think you can get from him? And probably the best way to know the answer to that question is what do we do when we don't get our way? Or what do we do when we don't get the stuff that we want? And Jesus speaks to them in light of what's going on here. And he encourages them saying in verse 27 and 28, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I'm gonna drop down to verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let me just say that again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall, nev oh, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is a throwback to that C.S. Lewis quote from the beginning. Now, we can never find something that's enough to satisfy us. But here's Jesus saying, if you believe in me, you won't be hungry again. You won't be thirsty again. You will be satisfied in me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus was sent by God to us to meet our greatest need and our deepest hunger. Now, there's two words in the Greek which mean life. We've got the word bios and the word zoe. Bios is biology. It's physical life. You know, it's the fact that you and I have a pulse. We're alive. And then zoe, on the other hand, is quality of life. One is about existence, the other one's about experience. The Zoe life is what Jesus promises us. He says, I, I came to bring life and life to the full. I came that you might have fullness of life, eternal life, life with God. That's what Jesus promises us in him. Now, the difference between these is so obvious to us, but not always when we read it just on the page. So I'm sure you've had a situation where you've done something that was exhilarating. I'm not a skydiving guy or a bungee jumping guy, but maybe just like a really fun day with friends that was spontaneous and amazing and you didn't expect a bunch of things that happened and you finish off the day and you say, I feel so alive. You know, that kind of thing. That's the difference between these two types of life. If you say, I feel so alive, no one thinks, whoa, Grant was dead, but now he's alive. We know that you mean it's the experience of life. It's the quality of life. This is an amazing thing that's happened to you. And when Jesus speaks here and says, I am the bread of life, we know the difference. He's not competing with really expensive artisan sourdough bread that might satisfy us. He's saying, not just that I'll fill you physically, but that I'll give you the quality of life, 
the satisfaction that you've been looking for in me. The reality is in this life, there's so many things that promise us the good life, that promise us quality of life, that promise us that kind of experience that we might want. But Jesus here challenges all those other promises and he says that it's him alone. He's the only one that can satisfy in the way that we most deeply and desperately are looking for. Now, before we continue in John 6, looking at what Jesus is saying and this claim that he is the bread of life, I'd love it if we just considered a little bit how much time we think spending about food, like thinking about food, the amount of energy that we give to food, the amount of time, all of those things. For Shell and I moving here to San Diego, the reality is whenever we say to someone, hey, give us recommendations on what we can do, it's restaurants straight away. Everyone's recommending a good place to eat, the best pizza, the best burger, the best cocktails, the best whatever it is. Food is a big deal here. And if you think about it, I'm getting so many nods from the crowd. Everyone's like, yeah, food is life. Food is God. And I think the reality is like just practically, we need to eat. So first thing, we wake up in the morning. And this morning, I went and I put on our tea kettle and I made a cup of tea. I know none of you can relate. Well, seven of you can relate to that. <laughs> made some tea and started thinking about breakfast. In our house, we've been having oats for breakfast. It's been really good. Some strawberries chopped up in there, a little bit of banana, a little bit of peanut butter swirled through. It's been amazing, life-changing the last few days. My mother-in-law introduced the peanut butter game-changer in the Clark household. But one of the things I remember growing up is my dad always, at one meal, would be talking about the next meal. And I did it this morning. We're in the car here. I'm like, so what do you think we should do for lunch? We're going to stop at In-N-Out on the way after church. What are we going to do for lunch today? She's like, no, I've got another plan. We think about food because it's like dotted throughout the day. It's not just that we've got these three meals and then snack times. On top of that, we've got to be buying groceries. Got to be thinking of meal plans. Like some of you maybe are looking through cookbooks thinking, what are we going to do this week? Or where are we going to eat this week? We think about this all the time because food is so central to life. We need food to be healthy. We need food to have energy. But also food brings us so much joy. So food is just, our whole lives are centered around food. I think some of you can see where I'm going with this. Food is something that we think about and talk about so much, but how much have we spent our lives or shaped our lives around being satisfied by our hunger for Jesus? How much time do we spend thinking about time with Him and scheduling in time with Him so that actually we feast on the bread of life and are nourished by and satisfi satisfied by how great and good Jesus is? That's one of the challenges of John 6 to us, the priority of Jesus in our lives. John 6 verse 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, which Jesus will give to you. And Jesus is amazing, actually, the way he teaches, like the rhetoric he uses and everything, because he's pressing the crowd here. He's saying, what is it you're living for? What is it that you're prioritizing? What is it you're focused on? And is it me or is it something else? Jesus is pressing them. And the reality is Jesus knows that the world offers us a lot of delicious breads to eat, a lot of things that are really attractive and that taste good and are satisfying. And he's saying, which of the many breads are you choosing from? Or are you coming to me the bread of life that you might be satisfied? I'm sure you guys can think of some of those breads. You can think of some of those different options that you could try to be satisfied on. It could be work or success or wealth or holidays, travel, new places, pleasure, even amazing restaurants or whatever it is. And it is so good to enjoy those things. All of those are gifts from God to us to enjoy. 
But when they become our thing, when they become the thing that we're living for, we will never be satisfied because they are not enough. Just like that cup of tea or that book. How often have you or I or us, how often have we wanted something and we think about it a lot? You're Googling it and researching it and you're just thinking, oh, love that. You start to save towards it. You know, you put a plan in place and you get there and you get that thing and it's amazing. It is just so, so good to have this thing for like five minutes and then it wears off. You're like, oh, I've got it now. It's like the anticipation of getting that thing is greater than actually having that thing. And you enjoy it and it's good and it improves your life, but instantly your eyes go to something else. You're thinking, ah, oh, I think if I had that, that would be a game changer. You know, if I went there, if I ate this thing, if I owned this, if I lived there, and we turn our eyes to that thing and then start to build this pathway to get there, and we get there and it happens again, we go, this can't satisfy me in the way that I'm looking for. It's great, it's amazing, but it's just not enough. That's what Jesus is saying in so much of this. He's saying, you know what? There's so many different things that can satisfy, but this kind of life will never satisfy in the way that we're looking for. We need to eat something else. We need to look to something else for what we most desire. Now, um, Adam said he was a nerd earlier, and I completely agree, 100% wholeheartedly, I'm all in. <laughs> Some other people in the crowd, they agreed it, but I'm a nerd too, um, in different ways, not because I'm in tech, just because of life. And I've worked in the church since I was 20. I had this like, thought in my mind, I'm gonna be a creative director in an ad agency, it's gonna be amazing. And I was like working as a copywriter at this place and just desiring church, thinking about church, feeling this call of God to be a pastor and work in the church. And I had this um, moment, which I think for me was significant, I hope it resonates with you guys. But in Durban, our city, um, a friend of mine did the sound engineering for probably the biggest, fanciest, most state-of-the-art church building in our city. This really big, it was called the Jesus Dome. You ready to rumble? I mean, it's quite a name, you know? <laughs> and we went there, and this guy takes us through and just shows us everything, you know? Shows us just the way they've done things, the processes, the systems. Shows us all the sound stuff he's done, which has just been millions and millions of rand. Really, really impressive, like, build out. And we went through all of this, and I remember standing in the middle of the auditorium and just looking around, 5,000-seater auditorium, fancy mezzanine, cool stage, all of those things. And whether this was just logic or whether it was the Holy Spirit, I don't know. So I don't want to pretend this is more of a spiritual experience than it was. But I just looked around the room, and I thought, if I was the pastor of this church, if this was the building we met in, you know, if we owned this, if it was paid off, it wouldn't satisfy me. It would be so cool for like a little bit. I'm sure like there'd be some street cred, you know, other pastors would be like, whoa, no ways, you lead that church. So that would be great. I'm sure it would be really flattering to preach to 5,000 people on a Sunday from a big stage. Maybe not good for my soul, but good for my ego. Like I'm sure there would be a lot of perks to that and it would look like success from a worldly point of view. But I just knew like straight away, if that was the role I had, the job I had, the building we had, all of those things, it wouldn't satisfy me. It's not meant to. It's a sign to point us to Jesus, the one who can satisfy you. So I want to ask you today, because some of you are like, well, Grant, that would never be a desire for me. If I stood there, I know I would be the same. I don't want this. But what is your Jesus dome? What is your version of that? Where you feel this pulling on your soul, this pulling on your heart to something. What is it and do you believe that would satisfy? What Jesus is saying to us in John 6 is that we so often hunger for the wrong bread. 
And I think one of the questions I want to put out today is, what is it your soul is salivating for? What, what is it the bread in you that you desire the most? And will it satisfy? Will it satisfy you? And the reality for all of us in this room is that we've already made a decision in our heads or hearts, whether we know this or not, about what we believe the good life is, what we believe will satisfy, and we've already made decisions to head towards that. So we're on a pathway to what we believe will satisfy us most. We're on this pathway to what we believe is the good life. And John 6 almost comes in as a bit of a T-junction. Is that the right word? Intersection? Crossroads? Fork in the road? Okay, I'm getting so good at code switching, but that one just, I don't know, that came out of nowhere. We get to this intersection. We've got to make a choice. Where are we going next? And almost we realize, am I living for what will truly satisfy? Am I living for Jesus? Or is it something else? And will that thing satisfy me? And Jesus says to us from this place of deep love that unless what we're living for is the bread of life, unless it's the life that he can give to us, eventually everything else is going to go stale and spoil. Really challenging. Jesus says, do not work for the bread that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. In John 6, what we see is that the thing that we're looking for is not a thing. It's not an idea. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we work for or earn or own. It's none of that. What we're longing for the most is a person. And his name is Jesus. And he came down from heaven and lived this perfect life on our behalf. And he gave himself completely for you and I on the cross. He died to make a way for us to know God to walk into all that we most desire and we're made for. And ultimately in this passage, Jesus calls all of the people listening to him to respond. This is a little bit lower, verse 53 to 55. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, whoa, <laughs> unless you do that, you have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. I hope I haven't lost any of you there. If you're new, just stick with me for a few minutes while we work through what's going on in those verses. And this is often used as a break of bread text. I didn't know when I prepared this message that we were going to break bread today, which is just a coincidence. But this isn't just about communion. This is about feasting on Jesus. This is about satisfaction in Jesus, not just eating the bread and drinking the cup, which I'm so looking forward to doing too in a while. It's about the fact that Jesus is the one that satisfies. And you can imagine Jesus gets up in front of 13,000 people as a man and now in the Old Testament scriptures, so the Jews knew this, you were not meant to eat human flesh. You were not meant to drink human blood. I mean, that's still pretty taboo today. So Jesus says this and everyone hears him and is like, whoa, okay. <laughs> we've traveled far. We've spent money. We got on boats. We came to find this guy and it seems like he's absolutely lost it. Like this is wild what's going on now in the sermon. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's just got this cannibal vampire zombie apocalyptic vibe to it. And what happens is as Jesus says this, the crowd who ate the sandwiches, who were amazed at the miracle, who saw the power of God, leave and go somewhere else. 
And Jesus is smart enough. I mean, he's God. He knows. He knows what he's doing in that moment as he says this controversial, taboo, off-putting thing. So what's he doing there? Um, again, I don't know if this will translate because I think vending machines have come a long way since I was a young kid growing up in South Africa. But I'm sure you've stood in front of a vending machine with a coin and you've put it in and you are hungry or thirsty for that thing inside that you want. It's like a chocolate bar, you're like, I need this. Cold Coke on a hot day, you need it. And you put in the coin and it drops and clicks. You know, that clink, you're like, cool, okay, we're in business. You put in the letter and the number, you're good to go. But have you ever had it before where you put in the money and it's just gone? <laughs> I had that as a kid. I'd put in probably five rand. Again, I'm losing you, five rand. And it would just fall and be gone. And I didn't have any other money. That was like my pocket money gone. And that Coke that I wanted was gone. It was out of reach now. And in a sense, what's happening here is Jesus is saying the penny hasn't dropped. Like these people have been with Jesus. They've been in the crowd. They've been around him. Maybe some of them have hugged him, have talked to him one-on-one, -on -one, have been touched by Jesus healed by Jesus, at least they've eaten the food that he miraculously multiplied. They've experienced Jesus to a degree. They've heard his teaching. They've been around him. But still what he's saying is the penny hasn't dropped for you guys. Jesus is, in a sense, a part of their lives. They're close to him, like geographically, regionally. They're right by him. He's, they can see him. But he's saying, you don't know me. You haven't eaten the bread of life. And when Jesus offends them by what he says about the miracles and sandwiches and eat my flesh and drink my blood and all of this stuff, these people who've been in his presence and experienced all of this Jesus stuff go, nah, we're out of this. We're going somewhere else to someone else for something else. This guy's wild. We can't do this anymore. And they believe something else will satisfy what they're most looking for. This quote was challenging to me this week as I read it. So as I just go through it, think about what it means, and answer the question for yourself. This is John Piper from his book, God is the Gospel. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauty you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? That's challenging, man. I mean, I lean toward yes on that, just to be honest with you. Like all of that stuff, that sounds pretty good. And in John chapter six, the crowd hears this. They're like, "Woo, we're in, sign us up. Heaven without Jesus, that sounds good to me. That's all the stuff we want, that will satisfy. But if you could have everything you ever wanted, without any suffering or hardship, but without Jesus, John 6 is saying, would that be enough for you? And Jesus is saying, it's not. It wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't satisfy. Jesus teaches us in John 6 that we must eat the bread of life if we want to be satisfied. And aside from the weird cannibalism vibe of John 6, to eat his flesh and drink his blood means to believe. Means to believe in him. Means to trust in him. It means that he is inside of you. And you can't eat halfway. You know, you can't just eat something and spit it out. That's not eating. That's something else. We have to eat and internalize Jesus. And it's the same with believing in him. 
You can't kind of believe in him. You know, it's not like a half in, half out thing. Kind of believe and then spit it out sort of thing. There's no middle ground here. We need to eat the bread of life. We need to internalize the food. And again, talking about eating. Believing that food exists is not the same as eating. Thinking about eating, as much as we might all do that, is not the same as eating. Knowing nutritional facts is not the same as eating. Understanding how the body digests food and translates it into nutrition that powers us and gives us energy, that's not the same as eating. Looking at food, smelling food, going to the grocery store, meal planning, cooking a meal, watching other people eat, going to a great restaurant is not the same as eating. Even though in all of those situations we're in the presence of food. To truly believe is to internalize and digest who Jesus is personally. It's to receive his nourishment in your soul and to let his salvation permeate your entire life. St. Augustine, who our daughter's named after, famously said, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. What John 6 is saying to all of us is only Jesus can fill the emptiness inside. Only Jesus can quiet the growling of a dissatisfied soul. Only Jesus can give you the good life, eternal life, life with God. Only Jesus can forgive you and wash you clean and take away guilt and shame. Only Jesus can forgive you and save you, and he wants to. But you must eat the bread of life. And sadly, what we see in verse 36 is most of the crowd rejects the bread of life which should be challenging to us today. Most of the crowd rejects the bread of life and the offer and Jesus and goes somewhere else for something else, hoping that it'll give them what they want. And you've got to see this kind of like bookmark. Beginning of the chapter, Jesus is a rock star. 13,000 people are coming out, getting on boats, giving up work, doing whatever they can to come and hear him speak and be with him. End of the chapter, everyone leaves him and goes on to something else. It's one of those wildest moments in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. In verse 42, we see the reason they left is they made excuses. Verse 60, the reason they left is Jesus, what Jesus was saying was too hard to believe. Verse 41, the reason they left is they were grumbling about the things Jesus said. So they go away. They go somewhere else. I'm going to read verse 66 to 69, and then we'll wrap up. After this, after Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. <coughs> it seems like a really bad day for Jesus' ministries. But Jesus is looking for disciples who love him and will follow him and hold to his teaching no matter what. He's not looking for fair weather followers. And he's also not desperately trying to keep people happy. Jesus isn't desperate. He knows that we need him, but he's not desperately trying to keep people happy to keep people on board. Verse 67, so Jesus says to the 12, he says to his inner core, he says to his most passionate followers, he says, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These 12 have eaten the bread of life. They have tasted and seen that Jesus is good. They found the satisfaction for their souls and they desire him. Now, I love this encounter here 
I think it's incredible. Jesus with the 12, the ones who are left behind. I think it shows us so much of what Jesus is like, what God is like. You see, Jesus says to them, guys, um, everyone else is gone. You saw the 13,000. They've all gone. Are you guys not going to leave too? Which to me is just amazing. You know, Jesus is so secure, but he's also got a bit of a mischievous edge. <laughs> and I love that. He's not worried if they want to leave, but he's actually kind of prodding to see what's below the surface in their hearts. Saying, you've seen the crowds go. You've seen the thousands go. They saw the miracles. They don't want to follow me. Don't you guys want to move on to the next thing with them? Don't you want to look for something else, somewhere else with someone else? Don't you guys also want to leave? And Peter speaks first, and he does this a lot. If you're new to the Bible, Peter's a great character. He's very bold and very flawed. But he speaks first here, like he often does, and he says, Jesus, I've got nowhere else to go. I see who you are, and you are all that I want. It's a beautiful moment. Ironically, Peter, who sees Jesus so clearly here in John chapter 6, has a lot of moments in the scriptures where he doesn't see Jesus clearly. And I like that because that's like you and I, right? If you've been following Jesus for a while, sometimes we see him so clearly, other times we're so distracted by other things. And Peter's this guy here who's like, we'll do anything for you. We'll go anywhere. You are life. You are everything. There's this moment where Jesus and the disciples are on a boat and Jesus is sleeping and there's a lot, oh no, sorry, I'm getting this scrambled. There's a moment where the disciples are on a boat and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And Peter sees this. And seeing so clearly who Jesus is, what does he do? He says, Jesus, can I come out to you on the water? Jesus is like, sure. Peter walks on water. What a cool thing to do. Walks on water to Jesus. He knows Jesus is God, the Savior of the world. Salvation and pleasure and satisfaction itself. Gets out on the water trusting Jesus. And then his eyes go from him to the waves and the water, and the fact that what he's doing is impossible, and he starts to sink. And Peter is like you and I, guys. Peter sometimes sees Jesus so clearly, and is full of worship, so bold. Where else can I go? You are the only one that has the words of life. You are life itself. You are my hope. And other times, his eyes are on his situations and what's going on around him, and he just goes down. I'm sure some of you in the room can relate to that. I love Peter's example here. And what we learn from Peter is that we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Seeing him is not a one-time thing. Seeing him is a constant, ongoing, continuous thing. It's a practice that we need to develop in our lives. That actually sometimes we need to bounce our eyes. I'm distracted by work, eyes on Jesus. I'm distracted by this thing that's making me anxious, eyes on Jesus. We need to learn to do that and develop that as a spiritual practice in our lives. But Peter speaks first, and he says, I have nowhere else to go. Now listen, there were many other places he could go to find bread. There's many other places he could have gone to find the good life. Many other places he could have gone, and probably places he'd been to before. But he knows they won't satisfy, and he says, Jesus, you are it. I'm all in. I'm with you. And in a sense, where he says, where else can I go? It's a rhetorical question, which I love. There's no one else, there's nowhere else, there's nothing else. So why would he leave? I want to ask you today, do you see what Peter saw in John 6? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and Peter goes, I see it. Jesus tells them who he is, and Peter says, I'm all in. You are life itself. Do you see it? 
or as I've gone through the John 6 narrative today, where do you find yourself in the story? Which character would you be? And how do you need to respond today? Obviously, I'm new here. I don't know many of your stories. I hope this has been helpful. But for those of you who, as I've been speaking, think actually maybe there is a better alternative than Jesus. Like, Grant, this is a great passage. Thanks for sharing. Maybe you think I shared well or whatever it is. But you go, ah, I think that's a bit too narrow. (laughs) I think that's a bit too exclusive to say Jesus is the only way, to say he's the only bread of life. Like, that's great. I'm glad that's working for you. But maybe there's another way, and I'm not sure if I can buy into this. If that's you today, then you find yourself in the crowd. You know, you maybe have been exposed to Jesus. Maybe you've been in church for a while. Maybe you've heard a lot of sermons. Maybe you've seen God do some really cool things. But if you haven't eaten the bread of life, then you're part of the crowd that would leave. You haven't experienced him. You don't know him for yourself. Or maybe you're here today, and I think this is maybe a bigger group of the people that are in the room. You have eaten the bread of life. Like Peter, you have seen that Jesus is who he says he is. You have experienced him in wonderful ways. You love him. You are for him. But like Peter, you found your eyes on different things over the last while. Maybe you're sinking. Maybe you're not feeling satisfied right now. Maybe you're looking to other things to satisfy because your eyes are off of him. Jesus comes in with this incredible reminder today that he is our satisfaction. He is our comfort. He is our salvation. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And if today you realize your eyes have gone from him to other things, the the encouragement is to come back, to turn your eyes on Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his mercy and grace. Why don't we stand together? We're going to take communion in just a moment, but I, I would just love it wherever you're sitting, just to, just to respond personally. So if you don't mind closing your eyes, if you're comfortable doing that, I'd love it if where you are, you just answer the question, where am I? Who am I in this passage? Have I seen Jesus? Have I eaten the bread of life? Am I satisfied in Jesus? Or am I looking to other breads, other things to satisfy me? And I just ask you now, Lord Jesus, that you would show each of us where we are at, but that you'd also show us yourself. I just thank you for Peter seeing so clearly in that moment when so many others didn't, who you are. I pray for each of us that we would see you, that we would know you, that we would enjoy you, and that we would be satisfied in you. And for each of us in this room now, in our different places, different realities, different experiences, different challenges, I pray you'd meet with us now and help us to find you.